paragraphs three and four. And what I want to do, I don't typically do this. I don't have a scripture text to, to encompass all of this that we haven't read numerous times in this chapter already. So what I want to do is read through these two paragraphs and then we'll pray. Um, a lot of times when we take these paragraphs just piece by piece by piece without actually reading them in, in totality, a lot of times the, uh, the full meaning can get lost. So I want to read these and then we'll pray. Paragraph 3 of chapter 11. Christ, by His obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those who are justified and did by the sacrifice of Himself and the blood of His cross undergoing in their stead the penalty due to them make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice on their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as He was given by the Father for them and His obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. In paragraph 4, God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, and Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit does in due time actually apply Christ to them. These are the words of men. But we believe that they are a summary of what the Word of God teaches. And so let's pray that the Lord will bless our time and especially show us these truths from Scripture. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank You for the great heritage that we have, the blessing that we have to, to learn from voices from the past and uh, to see that your Spirit has carried your church along for centuries from the very beginning and that the line of truth has remained. Lord, these men and the men before them and the men who've come after them and we ourselves have not discovered any new truth in your Word. But Lord, we, we find our place in a long line of godly men. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You've promised Your Spirit to be with Your church until the end of the age. And so we pray that You'd bless our time and teach us from Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just a reminder, it's been a couple, several weeks since we've been in the Confession. Paragraph 1 gave us a broad overview of the doctrine of justification. The word justification by itself, remember, means a declaration of righteous or a legal pronouncement of righteous in the case of a guilty sinner. So when one is justified before the bar of God, it is not as though God drops the gavel and says guilty. It's not as though He drops the gavel and says not guilty. It's that He drops the gavel and says righteous. And that righteous... Is, could be defined as morally upright according to God's holy standard. We are declared to be, according to God's standard, holy by God's declaration. Now, we saw that God does this not 
by infusing righteousness in us. He doesn't pour anything into us. He doesn't work in us any righteousness. It's not that He lowers the bar of His holy standard and accepts uh, faith as a virtue or kindness as a virtue or love or any other uh, what the confession calls evangelical obedience. It's not that God just says, well, I'll just take that instead since you're not righteous and we'll trade that out and call it righteousness. But rather, God in Christ pardons our sins, imputes to us the righteousness of Christ, and then, based on that imputation, declares us to be righteous. The word imputes means to credit to our account. He credits to our account the perfect life of Jesus Christ. We're reminded, and this is something that is still debated for some reason, that it is not simply the death of Jesus alone that made satisfaction to God, as we'll see more this evening, but His life and His death, His, his life culminating in His obedience unto death. That work, that full, complete work is imputed to the believer. In the second paragraph, we looked at the inward instrument of justification, namely faith, receiving and resting upon Christ. Not believing in God. We know that the demons believe in God and tremble. The demons probably believe in God more than many of us, especially in their actions as they tremble at the thought of God. It's not believing facts about Jesus. Again, the demons believe many facts about Jesus. They know He's the Son of God. They know that He is their ruler, their master. They, they know that there is a time coming when He will torment them for all eternity. They know these things, but they are not justified. Saving faith is not thinking that the story about the cross and the resurrection is a great story, uh, uh, an emotional tale with a happy ending. Saving faith is receiving and resting upon a person. It is a whole-souled flight in utter helpless dependence upon the man Christ Jesus and leaning and resting upon Him. That's saving faith and that is the sole instrument of justification. When we latch on to Christ in the soul, when we, we get Him, we might could say justification as well as adoption and other blessings are, are merely secondary to getting Him. We got Him and therefore we get all that He is and Him being the righteousness of God to us. The third paragraph we're going to look at this evening, I've entitled The Warrant of Justification. A warrant is the authority to carry out a particular action. So we might ask, uh, what warrant or what right does God have to do this, to accept the work of Christ in the place of sinners? Now it would be very easy to say, well, He's God and He can do whatever He wants. Um, but there's more to it than that. Paragraph 3 actually expounds or opens up the phrase from paragraph 1, Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in His death. What this paragraph is going to do is dive into the transaction between the Father and the Son for our justification. Remember that we're talking about objective salvific realities that have been achieved outside of us. This is a monergistic work of God. God works this out and we are the beneficiaries of it. So this paragraph sort of looks up into the heavens and takes a, a, an examination of what happened between the Father and the Son. So the first main heading that I've given here is the meritorious 
cause of justification. The meritorious cause. Richard Mueller defines merit as the value or worth of a good or obedient act. And then by extension, the just desert of the person performing that act. If you merit something, you do something, and your accomplishment achieves something for you. That act is worth something. So we might ask, and we, we already know the answer because the first paragraph gave us this broad overview, but we might ask, where does God come upon this righteousness that He imputes to the sinners? Remember, righteousness is not just an idea. For something to be righteous, it has to actually be a, a righteous act carried out according to the demands of God by one under the law of God. So where are these worthy or righteous acts, these meritorious acts carried out that then can be taken and credited to us? Again, Rome would say, well, there's some in Christ and there's some in Mary and there's some in the, the saints throughout history and there's this treasury, a, a big box of all types of people's merit and God takes some of it from time to time as, as needed and He gives it to believers. We would say... That's wrong. That's incorrect. It's Christ and Christ alone. So then what did Christ do? If the definition of merit is the value or worth of a good or obedient act, what was the good or obedient act that Christ carried out? First, we see Christ's subordinate meritorious work. When understanding what Christ has done, I want us to start thinking, or at least not start thinking, but at least think of this at one time in two levels, uh, superior and inferior or superior and subordinate accomplishments. There's one work that Christ accomplishes that is salvific and then overarching all of that is the superior work. We're going to take the, the second one first, the subordinate meritorious work. The confession says Christ by His obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are justified. We see four things in this, five things in this first statement. All men have a debt that they owe to God. Because He is Creator, as creatures we owe Him obedience. Because He is the independent one and we are all dependent, we owe Him thanksgiving. Because He is the preeminent being and we are lesser beings, we owe Him worship. Just because He's God and we're not. Now, every moment that you and I exist as lesser, dependent creatures and we do not render to God obedience, thanksgiving, and worship, with every thought, with every breath, with every action, we are robbing God of what He rightly deserves. We owe it to Him and we're not giving it. So we've all incurred a debt. We owe God, but we've not done it. Sinners, or as sinners, we've actually incurred one step further. You owe God obedience, but you've disobeyed God. Now you owe God a life. See, He gave you life, and your job is to take that life and give it fully to Him. Every breath, every heartbeat, every thought, every action. You've not done that, and therefore you owe God a life. And His law says the only way to pay that back is to suffer 
torment for eternity, death. The wages of sin is death. As a descendant of Adam, you owe God perfect obedience, thanksgiving, worship, and also, because you've not done that, you owe Him death, eternal death as punishment for sins committed against Him. This says that Christ fully discharged the debt. Now, in, in the legal sense, to discharge a debt means to release from liability. So, here's an illustration. You bought a car on Monday. So, you owe the bank $10,000 on Monday. Something happens on Tuesday and the debt is discharged. When you wake up on Wednesday, you don't owe them anything. They're not going to call. You're not responsible anymore. It's been discharged. You might even wait for a while and call them and say, Hey, I haven't heard from you. What's the deal? And they would say, The debt's been discharged. That's what Christ has done. He has fully discharged the debt that was owed to God. That's what He meant by the phrase, It is finished. The debt has been discharged. There's nothing left to pay, nothing owed to God for salvation. Now, this statement also says that Christ discharged the debt by His obedience and death. Now, obedience and death are end-time actions. Things that He actually worked out. He obeyed for 33 years and then He died at the end of that 33 years. The law required that we perfectly obey. The law, the law requires that we die because we did not perfectly obey. Christ comes and perfectly obeys and then dies even though He did perfectly obey. Since He obeyed and since He died, there's nothing left to owe to God. Nothing can be added to His work. Now, if Jesus Christ in His life and death in the place of sinners doing for them what they could not do, accomplished, discharged the debt, finished that work sometime around 33 AD, then does that not mean that all sinners go to heaven? Sinners owe a debt to God. Christ fully discharges the debt. The debt is discharged. Sinners don't owe anything. Well, we keep reading. The statement says that Christ discharged the debt of all those who are justified, declared righteous by God, the internal cause of which is faith, receiving and resting upon Christ. Do all men have faith? No. Then are all men justified? No. Will all men be justified? No. So here's the, the question. Then did Jesus actually discharge the debt for every individual who will ever live? No. If we say yes, then He didn't fully discharge the debt because there were people in hell when He was on the cross and there are people in hell now because they still owe something. Now, if you make faith the condition upon which the debt of an individual is discharged, now pay attention to the wording here, faith, the condition upon which the debt is discharged then unbelief, failing to believe, would not be a sin covered by Christ's death. He did not fully discharge the debt. He just mostly discharged the debt. 
That's why our confession says he discharged the debt of those who are justified. Those who had been justified by faith prior to his coming. Those who are right now walking as justified men and women on the earth. And those who in the future who will be justified by faith. Those people are the ones for whom Christ discharged the debt. That's the answer to the question, for whom did Christ die? Well, we've unpacked that word die and we've, we've got to have discharging the debt owed to God. The debt's discharged, then somebody's released. Romans 8.30 says that those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So who will be justified? Those predestined in eternity, effectually called in time, and in glorified in the other direction in eternity. That's the group for whom the debt was discharged. Now why do I call that work, that's, that's a pretty big deal, why do I call that subordinate? Why is that secondary? Because while dealing with the chief tenet of our salvation, as it applies to us, that is not directly addressing the overarching transaction that results in our salvation. Yes, Christ discharged our debt, but why is it important that our debt be discharged? Is it simply that sinners have the opportunity to go to heaven? Not first and foremost in a logical sequence. That, that is subordinate. So what is the primary meritorious work? What's the overarching concern? What was foremost in the mind of Christ in eternity, throughout His life, and even now, what's His primary concern? The confession says, speaking of Christ, that He did by the sacrifice of Himself and the blood of His cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due to them. It's Christ's death on the cross, not simply at the hands of men, but suffering at the hand of His Father, was He was bearing the penalty due to sinners. The confession here references Hebrews 10, 14, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Notice this is a single offering. He offered Himself. And by that one single self-offering, He perfected for all time. That means there's no need for more because the debt was fully discharged in that single offering. And who has He perfected but those who are being sanctified? Not those not sanctified. Those who are being sanctified. The sanctified and eventually glorified ones. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, knowing that you were ransomed. Actually ransomed, not potentially ransomed. It's not as though Christ brought the ransom money and laid it on the table and then backed away really slowly. And anybody who wants to go get some of that money and go pay the ransom can. No, He, he ransomed people for God. Knowing that you were ransomed, actually from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, the end time shedding of the blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That blood was shed one time, and that's the apex of His obedience, His death. In His death, He actually ransomed people for God. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That one act of Christ in the place of sinners was sufficient to bring us peace. His chastisement, the chastisement was upon him that brought us peace. The question is why? These are important questions when you're talking to people and trying to figure out what they actually believe about the gospel. What actually happened at the cross? What, what was going on there? Why did the penalty need to be carried out? Why couldn't God just forgive? As a lot of people seem to assume, Jesus died, God said, hey, that's a really nice thing that you did, and hey, you've cheered me up, I'm going to forgive some people, I'm in a good mood now. And they, they have no, no connection between what happened at the cross and how in the world rebels are just allowed to go free. D the debt discharged. So here's the chief concern. Christ made this offering up of Himself in death, and He did, notice the language, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf. We go back to our illustration. You owe the debt, you owe the bank $10,000 on Monday, something happens on Tuesday, and on Wednesday you wake up and you don't owe any debt. Why? You can't just wake up and call the bank and tell them, hey, I feel like I should be discharged. No, they have to be satisfied. Their, their numbers have to say it's paid in full. When the bank is satisfied, they'll let you know you've been discharged of the debt. In the same way, God's justice must be satisfied. Yes, God is loving, He is merciful, He is gracious and kind, and we say those words speaking of God as if we can even comprehend His love or His mercy or His grace or His kindness. We cannot. He's more gracious and more merciful than we will ever know. But those attributes of God cannot be overridden and they themselves cannot override God's justice. He can't say, I am a just God, but I'm just, today I'm just going to be more merciful. If sinners have sinned against God, justice demands that the penalty be paid. And God cannot justly discharge their debt without it being actually paid. Justice demands that the debt be paid. And so the chief concern in the life and death of Christ was the satisfaction of the justice of God. He came to vindicate God, to make sure that in the salvation of sinners, God could remain just and at the very same time justify the ungodly, the wicked, that God could stay true to His own holy standards and save sinners. Romans 3, 25 and 26 says that God put Christ forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show how 
much God loved us and wanted to have a relationship with us. That's not what it says. This was to show God's righteousness. Yes, it is, it is a display of God's love. Yes, it is, is it a display of His mercy and His grace and His kindness. But above all of that, it was a display of God's righteousness. Why? Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why ultimately did God send Christ to absorb wrath, to be a propitiation? Answer, it was to show His righteousness that He might be just. It was to show that God lets off no man. Nobody gets off the hook, not even His own Son. So the chief concern in the work of Christ was to ensure the justice of God, both in executing the penalty for sins and also in justifying sinners. There's no salvation apart from that. If God's justice is not satisfied, you don't have salvation, you don't have a gospel. That's important. The second main heading, the final cause of justification. Why would God do all of this? We know that this is the plan for the ages in Christ, but we, some people tend to ask, why not just avoid the thing altogether? Or when flood time came, why not just wipe it all out and say, hey, I, I tried, it's just not worth the, the hassle. Why would He continue in this plan? Well, the first thing we see is that God did this because He was free to do so. Confession says, yet inasmuch as He was Christ, He was given by the Father for them, and His obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead. By who? By the Father. And both freely, not for anything in them. So notice, Christ is given by the Father. Then Christ's work is accepted by the Father. And both the giving and the acceptation was completely free. God said, I'm going to freely give my Son. The Son works out the work. The Father freely says, I'll take that work. And... My justice is satisfied unconditionally, not for anything in the, the sinners themselves. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Notice, this is God the Father. He gave Him up. He gave up His Son. And that graciously... 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. That's God the Father. He made His Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In both of those texts, we're seeing that this is God's work. God freely, unconditionally, giving and accepting. This is a divine transaction taking place. And we see that God acted in this way to glorify His own grace. Their justification is only of free grace. That, or for this purpose, that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. In other words, it's of the grace of God so that God could glorify His grace, to show it off. Romans 3.26 says, "...it was to show His righteousness at the present time that He might be just." and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Ephesians 1, 6, and 7, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His 
grace. God was working to show off His righteousness and to show off His grace. Ephesians 2, 7, So that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God acted freely to glorify His own grace. So we see that God Himself is the chief concern in the salvation of sinners. God put forth His Son to satisfy the demands of His justice. God accepted the work of His Son and His justice is satisfied both freely to magnify His own justice and His own grace. The best, most righteous, most loving, most benevolent thing that God can do in saving sinners is not to just let them off the hook. A lot of people think that, well, if God was loving, He would just let people go. That's not the main thing that we need. We don't just need to be let go. We need to see God. That's, we we want to see Him. And He needs us to see Him and wants us to see Him. That's the whole point. So He saves in such a way that causes our eyes to look at Him and really the eyes of all, all the world to see His glory, His grace, His justice. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever because the chief end of God is to glorify God in the enjoyment of Himself forever. And in this way, it really is the gospel of God. It's all Him showing Himself, allowing us to see Him and magnify His glory. Now, I knew that that would be a short lesson. I actually added paragraph 4 just a little bit ago because I saw it was a short paragraph. So we'll walk through this one a little more quickly. I've called this paragraph the application of justice. So if the work of discharging the debt did actually happen at the cross and it's not contingent upon the actions of men to be effective, not effectual, but effective, wouldn't that mean that the elect born after the death of Christ, after the discharging of the debt, would actually be born, released, or already justified. You get the reasoning there? The men have gone this far, and some still do. Some of them, otherwise considered highly regarded theologians, and this ultimately extends into eternity for some of them and lays the groundwork for what, we, what has been called eternal justification. And I believe that's what the confession is, is combating here. Eternal justification or the idea that if you're elect and God determined beforehand that you would be elect and that you would be justified, then once Christ discharged the debt, then after that, really in the mind of God, you're basically justified from birth. Well, if that's the case and Christ is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, then really in eternity you're pretty much basically justified already. That's called philosophy, not exegesis. And so the confession addresses this issue very simply. It just lays out three biblical truths. The Bible says this, and the Bible says this, and the Bible says this. Problem solved. We don't need to go any further. So first, there's a prehistoric reality. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect. There's no argument about that. The decree of God was from all eternity and encompasses all things. Galatians 3.8 says that the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel to Ab beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. 1 Peter 1-2 refers to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's an eternal foreknowledge. And Romans 8-30 says, Those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He justified. There's no question about the fact that God did decree to justify His elect. Then secondly, there is the historic accomplishment. God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect... And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. That is, the work of Christ in discharging the debt did take place at a point in history. 1 Timothy 2.6, speaking of Christ, says that He gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Romans 4.25, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised in time for our justification. Christ discharged the debt in time, in the fullness of time. And then thirdly, the contemporary application. Well then, there you go. I guess our debt's discharged from eternity. No. Why? Well, the Bible doesn't say that. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. In the lifetime of a sinner, they are not justified and are viewed by God as guilty until the Spirit applies Christ to them and they believe and are justified by faith. Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So, listen to the language, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. A person must believe. Colossians 1, 21 and 22, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Once alienated, now reconciled. Not eternally reconciled. There was a time when those Colossian believers were really, literally alienated and hostile to God. <clears throat> in Titus 3, 4-7, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All of that language you can see is descriptive of actions in time. When the goodness of God appeared, He saved us, that we might become... This is not, as, as some primitive Baptists would say, we, you don't actually uh, get saved at a moment in time. You, just, you are elect, and so my job is to just tell you that you are elect. That, that's an evangelism. Uh, Scheme. I, it, you know, it appears to me that you're elect, so congratulations. I'd like to welcome you into the family of God. 
Um, no, a person must believe in time. Um, no one is justified apart from real in time faith in Jesus Christ. So, in the Reformed tradition, or even if we wanted to step back above that into uh, Calvinistic soteriology, there is no place for this idea that somebody might be elect, never know it, never have any inkling of God, never, never believe in God in time, but then die and go to heaven because, well, they were elect. If a person is elect from eternity, that will evidence itself in effectual calling in time, which will produce regeneration, which will lead to faith and repentance, and at the moment of saving faith, they will be declared righteous by God, and they will begin to produce the fruit of a new creation, a, a newborn creature in God. Um, what you'll see with, with those who hold to those eternal justification and other doctrines like that, or many men who simply want to accuse and attack what they think might be the logical application of Calvinism, or, or um, they begin to philosophize, well, you believe this, well, then that must mean this and this and this, so you must believe this. What we need to get good at showing is, here's what the Bible says, and this is what we believe. If, if you can't make sense of that, or if I can't make sense of that, that doesn't change what it says. Here's what it says, here's what we believe, and we, we're, we are satisfied to stop there. And I've said before, our ability to justify and explain those things doesn't make them true. Learning truth, even if you can't reason all the ways around it and explain it very articulately to people, if you can state it, that's, that's holding up the light. And it doesn't... Now, if you can vindicate it with great and wonderful lofty arguments, well, that might help, but that doesn't make it any more true. You just get the truth out. The truth can always produce more truth. Falsehood can never produce truth. Get the truth out and, and trust that the Spirit will use it. But uh, I think it's... It's interesting to see the, the authors of these confessions, how they dealt with these issues in their day. And even in that paragraph, very simply, there's nothing lofty or philosophical about it. The Bible says this, the Bible says this, the Bible says this. Next paragraph. Um, so that's a blessing. So let's stand and we're going to sing a song.